what an absolute honor it is to bring in a, a titan of uh, American music, a guy who's been on the bandstand, was on the bandstand for probably seven decades, if not more, with incredible luminaries, uh, soul outfits, jazz, and uh, ultimately also uh, in the iconic uh, Count Basie big band, uh, hailing from... Uh, South Carolina, Johnny Williams, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Now, uh, are you Jake? I am. Okay. I'm just a little confused about that. Uh, so, Well, welcome to the show, man. Well, anyway, are you recording? Absolutely. I see. All right. Johnny, you know, I, my first question is if you could just talk to younger cats about ultimately how you were able to um, learn music. Most of your generation uh, came up through auditory learning. Uh, they didn't have real books. They didn't have curriculums. Uh, a lot of times you would have to listen to the records and actually transcribe the solos just based off what you were hearing on the records. I just kind of wanted you to talk about how you learned to hear well, music. As a youngster, uh, the community was just a, a chock full of piano players and every, everyone took music lessons in the community. I mean, during the summertime, you could walk down the street and hear piano players all over the place. But um, uh, that was just a, a fortunate environment at the time. And uh, we didn't have a lot of technology. And, uh, as a matter of fact, when I started, I don't think... Uh, most of the people in the community had telephones. Right. And uh, as a matter of fact, I remember specifically the first two neighbors who got television sets. I was born in 1936, so you can figure, you know. Would, would you? Uh, would you? Would you go to bed at night listening to? certain radio stations so what were you outside of lessons i mean yeah yeah well, well well uh that's that's a good question because i often went to bed listening to one or two uh stations if you could get through the static <laughs> <laughs> uh uh that played jazz, and the one was uh, Dick Martin from New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I think his name was Dick Martin from the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans. And he would be on for, it was called Moon Glow with Martin. And he was on for two hours. And until my father would say, Johnny, would you turn that radio off? <laughs> <laughs> and so that, I'd have my ear pressed pressed to the, uh, to, uh, the radio listening to Dick Martin and then there was uh, another disc jockey from North Carolina uh, 
I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. It's okay. And uh, I would uh, listen to him occasionally. But uh, in reference to uh, learning early on, my father played fiddle on special occasions. By the time I was born, he was working real hard and uh, maybe Sundays or holidays, he'd play the fiddle and show me how to tune the fiddle and let me uh, scratch on the fiddle a little bit, but there was no uh, form formality, just, you know, making noise. And um, my mother played piano, and my grand both grandmothers played piano. Huh. And uh, just, just as I said, it was music was all over the place, but there was no formality. Um, when your your when your dad did play um, music, would you, you you referred to it as a fiddle, which I love, but that in, to me refers to more like. Uh, mountain music or, or or bluegrass or Appalachian? What kind of music were you guys, was it more orchestral music that, that your dad would play? Yeah, my, my dad my dad had uh, attended college and wow. uh, was was the, 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 the best violin player at the college. And uh, he graduated in 1930, I believe. Wow. And, and he kept his violins and uh, occasionally, on special occasions, as I said, he would play. Uh, my first uh, lessons were on piano, and I hated them. <laughs> I didn't like my teachers at all. Uh, I started meeting people later on who really knew how to motivate me and encourage me. And uh, my interest began to rise. Uh, must have had four or five, or maybe more, piano teachers. And uh, anyway, uh, didn't really take to the piano except for playing Boogie Woogie. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard of Boogie Woogie. Yeah. Well, my, I was just wondering if, if your folks allowed you to play the blues and Boogie Woogie in the house. Well, oh, 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 I could play anything I wanted in the house. Okay, but so I mean, they, they weren't, like, your parents were, and the community at large was not uptight about, quote-unquote, jazz being the devil's oh, music. Oh, yeah. oh, no, my first jazz records were my daddy's collection. Wow. Wow. You know, I had these... Uh, wonderful recordings. Um, some of them, the Fat Walla and, and, and the Giants. But uh, uh, no, he was he was a great jazz lover himself. Yeah. Can you? I mean, when like I remember, you know, you're. I just remember a lot of cats like at Howard University, Roberta Flack, and. People like that, they'd go there. They, but there was no jazz curriculum. The security guards wouldn't even let the cats play. And this is in the early '60s at South That's Carolina right. State. Did they even? Did they forbid you to play jazz? Was there a jazz program there? 
there was no program, but we had a, a, a jazz band, a, a, a big band, hmm. some some good jazz players. Most of them were for, from Charleston, who attended school here. But uh, uh, but the, the the idea that like. Um, how? Where were you guys? Like, could you play in the school cafeteria? Would you play concerts? I mean, to me, like that, like jazz was basically um, at the at the university level. I mean, outside of later on, it was Berkeley or North Texas. But I mean, I just wonder. Well, let me clear this up for you. Uh, uh, I. Let's let's go past high school now, sure. okay? Yeah. And at South Carolina State College, uh, we had little jazz groups and jazz big band, but no formal instruction was offered. No jazz program was exactly. offered. Right. And uh, no one thought, improvisation, anything uh, of that nature. Uh, uh, you just, uh, guys got together and played, and then we played for the college dances and played in, in rural communities around South Carolina uh, for, for junior senior proms and dances. And... Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, basically I would have been, my, my question is, is about, um, how liberating, if that's the right word, it was the fact that there were no rules. Could you kind of make up your, not it within the, the degree, not within the, the, the academy, but were you, how, how free, how liberating was it? Um, to be able to basically play the music you loved and there was no grading, there was no curriculums and there was no formula because today it's all formula. But what you're talking about is basically playing this beautiful swing, big band, jazz, boogie woogie. And there was no template. You could just go off on your own to me, that's why everybody in your, from your generation and the fa- father, you know, the, the, the next generation had their own individual sound. You know, it's just a very beautiful thing. And I just wonder how, were you frustrated that they didn't have, I mean, teaching improvisation, that's an interesting concept in and of itself. But did you feel more freedom that they didn't have, that they didn't have academic classes or did it, did it bother you? Well, it was of no concern. We just had fun. I mean, just play with, play with whatever you wanted to play. Uh, there was jazz was not offered uh, in the curriculum. Uh, the little music we had, uh, we didn't have an established uh, music department uh, until after I. Uh, started college, you know, so even the music department was rather weak, except for about three or four uh, 
teachers on the music faculty, but there was no uh, degree offered in music. Music education was offered, which primarily taught uh, uh, teaching techniques, mm -hmm. whether it may have been social studies or biology or music or whatever, but I mean, uh, music was, uh, and especially jazz, I later on went to Indiana University. And they uh, didn't allow uh, uh, jazz players to uh, to practice during the, uh, the school regular school hours. Uh, there were exceptional musicians who were in school there, but they were usually reprimanded when they played jazz. Exactly. And uh, guys like David Baker. Oh, my God. I mean, it's still just an iconic. Uh, I mean, you were there way before Booker T. Jones and Randy Brecker and those guys, too. Yes, before then. Then we had Jamie Abersall. Jamie Abersall. Yes, he and I were schoolmates. Oh, my. That is so. I just but, want to be clear. <clears throat> The school did not have a saxophone performance concentration. Now, what? Well, this this you hit upon a very important yeah. point because uh, when I applied uh, for uh, a master's degree um, to attend graduate school at, at IU, uh, it was made clear to me that I could not major on saxophone, but that's the, that's the only thing I'd ever played. <laughs> and I said, they said, only clarinet is accepted. And, but I had uh, uh, learned saxophone in high school and uh, continued to play and picking up points and uh, little ideas from my classmates. And so, but Indiana University was, it was, it was a, a no-no to play jazz in the practice rooms. But Jamie, Jamie would, as an example, was one perfect example of being relentless and dedicated and committed and he played changes on the piano all the time, but not on his instrument until after regular school hours. He played saxophone at night mm -hmm. in, the, in, in uh, East Hall, which was the hall that had the uh, practice rooms. But uh, during the day, he would play changes on the piano. And we had a a few teachers who would storm out of their offices and, <laughs> and shout not to play that that music in here, you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, can you? I mean, at forty five, I'm forty five years old, and and I I'm trying to. I would love you to talk about the why, for instance, like uh, saxophone was forbidden as a performance 
concentrate? Like, why couldn't you major in saxophone? Why was it only clarinet? Well, the standard then was the, the, the symphony orchestra. Right. It, it was a, a racial thing. And uh, we don't like to hear that all the time, but that's the price we have to pay for it. Uh, so, uh, uh, I was fortunate I had a clarinet teacher, Henry Julique, who was a master clarinetist, and he had a great admiration for the jazz players, but he didn't have time to play jazz, nor did he have a desire to play jazz, but he had played baritone saxophone in the Army uh, during the Second World War and uh, was uh, very open-minded, but once you entered his office for your clarinet lesson, uh, it was all clarinet, all symphony-oriented hmm. concept. And so, like uh, the Earl, I, I, I was told that I could only major on clarinet, and I had only played clarinet uh, self-taught for about a year and a half. And when I got to IU, I was just completely terrified when I heard all these wonderful uh, classical clarinet players who had studied privately since they were seven, eight years old. And I was self-taught on clarinet. So, but I, anyway, I started at IU in the grad program. And... Uh, during the after hours, David Baker would rehearse his big band and Jamie Ebersole and Larry Ridley on bass. Um, are you kidding me, dude? Larry Ridley? Yeah, right. Oh, Larry come Ridley. on. Jo and you, Johnny Williams was in there, too, I know. Who, me? Were you playing with them at late night? Not so much. So more of a listener. Uh, <laughs> me too, I, I, bro. I played... I played fraternity parties and mm -hmm. stuff like that but uh but uh joe hunt uh uh larry ridley uh wow uh, several guys were, were really 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 playing well i mean they were for indianapolis did you i just want to go back to a couple things i wanted to touch on in in orangeburg and then also when you were sort of traveling around the state, did you did you have an opportunity to play uh, for the Pentecostal church or the tent revivals? Uh, the, the, no. But were you privy to that stuff? I mean, I, to me, like, that was, those were the holy rollers. I mean, those cats would set up the tents. You'd have a, a preacher up there with maybe a guitar, maybe a guitar, maybe not. But... I mean, people were falling out of the pews, and that was the church was on the bandstand. I mean, did you even get exposure to that when you were traveling the state? Well, just in the, as I said, in the community, you were exposed to it, uh, whether you were traveling or not. Uh, uh, it, it was it was a part of the culture, right? Uh, but yet so. they, but but then, but that was considered more. Again, going into the blues and the sanctified church, 
Did you? Yeah, uh, they, they were all over the black communities, all over the South. But the, for the blues, you heard more of it coming from Mississippi. Right. And jazz, uh, you heard uh, coming from New Orleans and Charleston, South Carolina, and places like that. Absolutely fascinating. Talking to Johnny Williams here on the Jake Feinberg Show. <clears throat> um, did cats like Earl Hines or Fats Navarro, who were some of the cats that you got a chance to see that would actually, t- I mean, it took a lot of courage for a lot of these, these dudes to take their cat, to take their bands on the road. Uh, when, before you went to Indiana university, did you, was there a, a chitlin circuit of sorts that you were able to see some of these icons that, that you were listening to on the radio? Uh, once in a while, uh, some of the great musicians would pass through Columbia, South Carolina, or Charleston, South Carolina, and we would find an excuse to get out of school to get up there. And uh, my favorite station was standing at the stage door waiting for their buses to <laughs> arrive and <laughs> ask to take the instruments in. So I, I, would, I would have an excuse to get backstage. And uh, so hence I got a chance to meet so many great musicians standing at the stage door and they would let me in. And uh, well, who did you meet? Oh, I met a lot of people. I, uh, my goodness, man. Uh, I only ask because this is so. I mean, I've I I never got chance to interview, uh, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, Lou Donaldson. I interviewed Jimmy Heath, but these cats were all your peers. So I'm trying to figure out who those icons were. Was it some of the some of the? But they they weren't my peers. I was younger. Uh, uh, Jimmy Heath and I became friends years later, you know, until his death. You know, sure that was. Uh, what, what, so, I mean, just throw me some names because it's not really in my wheelhouse. I'm curious about some of the, were they ragtime guys? Who were, who were some of the cats that you met? Oh, no, this is after ragtime. Uh, uh, well, as an example, uh, I was standing at the stage door waiting for the Stan Kenton band to come. Mm. And uh, I beg your pardon, Lionel Hampton's band to come. Wow. And he always had exciting, exciting bands. Uh, and uh, Herb Pomeroy from Boston. Herb Pomeroy was on the road. He was a road dog big bander at that. That's unbelievable. Oh, holy, hold, hold on. He was with Lionel Hampton. Herb was in that. I see. This is Johnny. This is so important, man. That, that I did not know. Pomeroy was in Lionel's band. Yeah. So, but anyway, so I asked him to take his trumpet in, and he said, "Oh yeah, here it is. Walk in." And uh, so anyway, I got a chance to say hello to him and ask him questions. You know, I always had a lot of questions. <laughs> Young people do. Yes. And. Uh, I remember he puffed his cheeks like Jesse Gillespie. He was excellent there. And about six weeks later, Stan Kenton came through 
And who should finally step off the bus but her Pomeroy? <laughs> he has left Lionel Hampton and joined Stan Kenton. <laughs> and he said, Are you, have you been standing here all of this time? <laughs> I said, yeah, this is my spot. I don't move, man. I love it, dude. I love it. You know, so therefore he, uh, he uh, let me go in with him. And... Uh, uh, we were able to uh, stay in touch only by uh, uh, through through others uh, uh, through my daisy years, and uh, so. But anyway, uh, there were many, many. I heard many, many uh, great musicians. Duke Ellington came through. Uh, Several times, and Nick and Cole, and, uh, and uh, what were they playing like, uh, like movie theaters or ballrooms? I'm just curious about, like, because when you know, cats that were growing up, there was just a very vibrant Chitlin circuit, you know, that ran Howard, the Howard Theater in DC. That's right. I'm just curious, and then there were a bunch of you know, the Earl Theater in Philly, but down south was there. Was there some some of those? What what were the venues that would would house these titans of jazz? Well, there would only there would only be one nighters, right? And uh, no no band came to and stayed more than one night usually. And uh, uh, see, uh, you have to realize the. Uh, the, the Segregation was uh, was very strictly it was apartheid uh, environment. Right. Uh, there was no. It was no joke. I mean, it was it was it was seriously enforced. So music was a a freedom message, you know, for us. Uh, so about twice, two or three times a year, a great band would pass through, like Buddy Johnson Band, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Stan Kenton, uh, Duke Ellington, or uh, Basie, and uh, uh, such uh, su- such great musicians were not accessible to us in small venues. So there was usually the city auditorium. And uh, they would have uh, uh, Columbia, South Carolina would have, say, like a rope down the middle of, of the auditorium, one side for black and one side for white. Wow. And... Uh, wow. And then sometimes the black would, uh, uh, patrons would have to sit upstairs in the balcony. And then if it was a black band, the white uh, could go either way, whatever way they chose to go. They could stay downstairs or they couldn't go upstairs and, and be separate. And so, but it was also uh, the only time 
in South Carolina that things were just uh, sort of neutralized. You would stop and speak with whites who were uh, jazz fans or musicians and have uh, just a, a great talk with them and uh, maybe see them the next time, six months later when another band would come through. But ordinarily, they were strictly segregated audiences. <clears throat> so like <clears throat> when Kenton would come through and you would wait at the back door, you weren't really, were you playing with fire or was like the entire, like inv that whole event was sort of, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I mean, you guys were still separated by a rope and the, some, and people with people of skin color had to sit upstairs, but were you taking a chance with your life if you waited outside for a quote unquote white leader of a big band? Did, did, did I do what? Well, I mean, like, for instance, Stan Kenton, I mean, he's he he's white, you know? He's a white uh, big band leader. Not like Duke is, Duke was a black big, big band leader. Um, Bass he was. But if, like, a white big band leader came to the, to the auditorium and you were in the back at the door, were you, people left you alone? Or were you... Um, uh, the first time I met Stan Kenton was, uh, I don't know who pulled it off. I, he'd never seen it before. Mm. But there's a black college here named Claflin College mm -hmm. here, Claflin University here. And someone managed to book Stan Kenton's band uh, in 1956, as a matter of fact. I remember the year uh, for... Claflin College, so no whites came at all, and it was a hundred percent black audience. Oh, and and we all stood there and listened to Stan Ken. We were really excited about his coming, and I brought my little webcore recorder and <laughs> set it up. I set it up at the at the foot of the stage, and I got a message saying that Stan Ken wanted to meet me during intermission. And I said, he wanted to meet me? And they said, yeah. <laughs> so I went back stage and he said, you know, we record for Capitol Records. And I said, of course I know that. You know, I have all of your records. And he said, well, he said Capitol wouldn't like it if you recorded us. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I remember that band very well. Uh, I had some fabulous musicians in the band. Wow. And, uh, uh, you know, you had Shelley Mann, Dick, uh, Ed Safransky. Oh, uh, my. Wait, Shelley was, Shelley was playing? Rogers, uh, Neil Hefty. Oh, my God. Uh, just, uh, just. Uh, oh, my was, God. Was Zuli, uh, Art Pepper. Uh, just great bands. But anyway, so I, I was just happy to meet Kenton. So I just said, well, that's all right with me. I packed up, packed up my equipment and stepped aside and just listened. Well, anyway, that was the first time I met him. And um, uh, Lionel Hampton was 
was also uh, available to talk with you anytime he came through. And so once I was standing there talking with Lionel Hampton, and Lionel Hampton had just come back from Europe, and Clifford Brown and and uh, uh, a lot of people we know were in that great band. I think Quincy was in that band, Clifford Solomon. But anyway, they decided to do work some gigs in Europe on their own when Hamp wasn't working. And so Hamp and his wife fired the entire band but stranded them in Europe. <laughs> and, uh, and they had to find out their own ways to get back to the States. But uh, he decided to continue his tour, but he just hired all white musicians and came to South Carolina, and that was unheard of. And uh, anyway, I'm standing there asking Lionel Hampton questions backstage at the Township Auditorium in Columbia, South Carolina, just as I always did, and asking questions. He was very kind. And uh, a white policeman walked up. He was in his uniform, blue uniform, and he said, uh, are you... Uh, are you are you Lionel Hampton? He said yes. He said, "Are you aware of the fact that uh, we don't allow colored and white musicians to play together here?" And uh, and Ham said, "Oh no." He said, uh, "He said uh, he had about three black guys in the band for that tour, and the rest were white." And uh, Lionel Hampton said, "Oh no." Of course, he had come from Kentucky, so he knew the ropes. He said, no, 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 no. He said, these are regular white boys. These are this Dick Twartzik from Poland on piano. Wow. And Al Greenstein from Israel on bass. And uh, and he just uh, completely hoodwinked. So the, 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 the uh, policeman said, well, wait a minute. I'll be back. I'm going to go down to the station and talk with the chief and see if he will allow you all to play tonight. And uh, so Ham didn't even let it phase him. He came back and he said, well, just for tonight only, we're going to let you guys play. And uh, uh, that was the band that her Pomeroy was also in. And um, there was, there was, that was just the day, you know? I mean, it, it was a fact of life, you know? It was, you weren't supposed to mix. It's, it's so, uh, it's so amazingly powerful. I mean, that, can you recall any other situation growing up where you had the situation where, um, it could be a politician, but I mean, the fact that Stan Kenton came to an, this college in South Carolina and no white people showed up, Stan's leading a white band to a whole black audience. That to me is so symbolically and, and just sonically 
inspirational. Can you recall any other times that that happened? You know, like did I mean did 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 uh, you know? I don't know, Truman come down. I don't, I, I'm just trying to figure out like the, cause it was so segregated and there was so much apartheid and it was so real that that stuff just, it, it, it just almost does. It, it's just mind blowing to me. Well, I guess it is, you know, so that's why it's important to have history talk. And, and, you know, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, and then the right, the, the, the real history, not, you know, not, not the sort of, you know, papered over, you know, history of it, you know. Um. <clears throat> yes, I did. They, 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 the, now you watch television, it's all changed, you know. But, uh, but anyway, what I'm telling you is the truth, uh, as, as uh, I remember it. And, um, Johnny, when you, when you, um, can you talk about, like, you you when you decided to? Did you go out to to California and then join the the army, or did you get, enlist in the army when you were still at Indiana? No, I uh, I was uh, at Indiana U for two years, working on a. Uh, so-called master's degree in music education mm -hmm. and um, had a C-plus average and uh, they released me from the school because in order to maintain uh, the status as a grad, grad student, you had to maintain a B average. And uh, there were so many distractions for me. It was a new environment. I'd never uh, sat in a classroom with white students and, and uh, socialized with whites before. And also, but uh, there were many distractions. Uh, but anyway... Uh, except for the pretty girls. Well, of course. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, that was that was the major distraction. I mean, I would, yeah, I, wouldn't, I can't keep myself focused with all that, all those pretty girls around. No, uh, so, but anyway, uh, uh, it was the way it was. And uh, so I left Indiana U with passing grades, but not quite a B average. And went out to California and started my master's over again at Cal State, excuse me, <laughs> over again at Cal State, not telling them that I had attended Indiana U. I just used my transcript from South Carolina State College. Which, which, which state school in California? Uh, L.A., Cal State, L.A. Got it, got it. So you just, <laughs> you actually and didn't no. even, you could just bypass the transcripts from Indiana and just gave them the South Carolina State ones. Yeah, just as though I had never been to Indiana. I dig, I dig. It's simply because I figured by that time I had a real college education. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Because in South, in South Carolina, it was uh, uh, not on that standard, uh, that high musical standard. What and, was the, uh, I mean, like... I mean, it's just, I, I know the the Jazz Crusaders, a little bit after you, relocated from the, <clears throat> the Gulf Coast, and California was seen as this land of sunshine, land of opportunity, um, especially coming, well, Indiana was, Bloomington was one thing, but coming from the South especially, can you talk about the integration and how progressive even the music was at that time? I mean, that was in the that was right in the sort of cool west coast times of just percolating at that time yeah well there was a lot of music in in uh in los angeles man it was really really hot and uh i took private lessons from one of the studio musicians on clarinet and uh, got a job. Uh, well, actually what happened really was that I finished my coursework at Cal State, but I didn't write the thesis. I got lazy <laughs> and didn't, didn't write the thesis, but I had good grades with the uh, coursework but got my greetings from the army and at that time the South Carolina local draft board was following every step that I made wow you know and they drafted me from California into the army and uh, I stopped in an office downtown and I said look I'm a musician and uh, I don't want to fight anybody. And they said, well, look, uh, if you don't want to wash dishes or fight, get into the band, but you have to sign up for the third year. Well, it would turn out to be uh, a frightening, frightening experience initially, but... Uh, Why was that? Great. The, the, the experience of being drafted was frightening I see. for me. Yes, yes. But, but it turned out to be a fabulous and great experience because for three years I just played music in the army. And were we were we at war at that time in any any part of the world, or were we were we in a peacetime kind of situation? Oh, we haven't ever been at peace, have we? I agree with but, you, man. I'm just talking about like. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. No, I'm you know, with you, man. Uh, when I was in, when I was stationed in the in the division band in Germany, uh, the Vietnam War started. Right. So it was like sixty. What year was? Well, it? I, I went into the army in sixty-two. Right. It was discharged in early '65. I just want to. I I want to. <clears throat> was like, was was like Joe Henderson in that? Who was in that band? 
no, uh, Joe was not, but he was, he was, he was, uh, I think Joe may have been a little bit <clears throat> ahead of me. Really? I'm not sure about okay. that. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, there were some great musicians around. Uh, Don Menza lived in, in Munich. Dude, Don Menza is a dear friend of mine. I cannot believe you. Because Don Menza was, off, was heading off to heavy artillery, and he got into the band, and it saved his life. He would have he been dead, he said. Without the without the music in Germany, I can't believe yeah. that. That's well, so beautiful. Well, I would. I felt the same way about having after having met him because I was very often a guest at his home, and his wife would cook, and he would he and I would listen to opera. <laughs> he was an opera fan. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he was playing with the Max Greger band. Absolutely, the Max Greger band. Unbelievable. Yeah, Don was there, and I was always welcome in their home, which I will always appreciate. I still tell him that every time I speak with him. And uh, anyway, uh, but uh, there were just uh, just marvelous friends. Just it was like it was, 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 was John Hurd out there at all, the bass player? No, I don't think so. Was John Hurd ever in the military? No, you know, no, he was, and ironically enough, <laughs> he wound up uh, doing painting classes for the for the army, for the guys in the army, their wives. You know, that's how he stayed off the battlefield. Okay, now would you believe that this is my telephone? Go get, yeah, go, 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 do what you got to do. I can pause it. Uh, just a moment. Yeah, man. Yes. How are you, sir? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, can you, so, um, <clears throat> when you, when, when you left, when you got out of the army, um, you know, I'm just curious about the idea of, um, did you, how did you wind up connecting with uh, Barry Gordy and, and the Motown scene. They were still in, in Detroit at that point. Yeah, well, uh, when I got out of the Army, I ran into a trumpet player who had been in the Army band with me in Europe. And he had come to town with Joe Tex. Wow. And he said that uh, he had uh, gotten the word that Ike Turner needed a trumpet player and a baritone player. And he had me, if I had eyes, to go with Ike and Tina. So I said, well, uh, we can talk about it. And he said, well, why don't we go over to Ike Turner's home and talk with him about the business. And so uh, Tina answered the door and I uh, 
work with us for a while and said, well, I can already offer you $30 a night on the nights that we work. And we're on the road now, on the bus. And so uh, he said, but on the nights you don't work, you're on your own. <laughs> but I was so anxious. I was so anxious to play after getting out of the army because I've been playing all my life. Uh, I said, wow. He said, he said, well, I can tell you guys can play, so I'm going to make it 35 each. $35 on the night you work. So usually we work uh, four or five nights, and the other nights we just had to pay our rent on the road. And, of course, we all we paid the rent every night, but, I mean, those nights we didn't earn anything. Right. And, uh, but it was big fun because we got a chance to travel and play our instruments. And, uh, what was the, I I mean, what was the, the circuit like? I mean, that must've been, Oh man. I mean, I cannot imagine. All all black. And once in a while, when we get to a city like Los Angeles, it would be, uh, uh, mostly white audience. But usually it was hundred percent black audience all through the, South Mississippi, uh, uh, everywhere, everywhere in the South. <clears throat> did you have? Did you? Did you have experiences like everybody in the band was black, too? Uh, no. Once, once in a while, we'd have a, a a white musician like we had Jimmy Knight on guitar, who had copied. I turn a style and play a lot like Ike. Hmm. And, uh, but, uh, the rest of the band was black. And you, uh, w- did you have any run-ins with, with the Ku Klux Klan down South? Well, uh, the only time that I had a problem was, uh, of course it was segregated all the way through. Right. But, uh, I, we we got to Rayville, Louisiana, which was on the border of Mississippi and Louisiana. And at that time, they were beginning to take some of the white and colored signs down and, and uh, allowing you to like use the restroom at a service station, a gas station. The buses had no bathrooms. And so I said, look, I got to go, man. Uh, uh, you see any signs? And they said, no, we didn't see any signs. And I said, well, I'm going to use this bathroom, so I, uh, uh, walked in, or opened the door, walked in the bathroom, and the doors, <laughs> the door was kicked open, and all of a sudden the man said, look, he said, if you pee in this bathroom, he didn't say it like that, but he said, if you pee in this bathroom, 
I'm going to blow that Barry head off you. And he put the gun right to my nose. And I said, uh, I said, well, we're getting our bus serviced here. He said, he repeated himself. He said, if you don't get out of this bathroom, I'm going to blow that barry head off you. And uh, by that time, he had called the police. And they said that, of course, I never did get a chance to pee. <laughs> oh and, and anyway, he called the, I think they were highway patrolmen. And they said, I want every one of you to get out of town because you're troublemakers. And uh, anyway, anyway, uh, we got on the bus and the bus driver got so nervous that he started driving fast. But I Turner drove up in his limousine with Tina and said, uh, make it to the Mississippi border. And here we are running from Louisiana to Mississippi. My goodness. Oh, my God. And so, but anyway, uh, he got excited and he hit a farmer with some chickens on it, on the truck. And the chickens were flying all over the place. After we thought about it, it was quite funny, but it wasn't funny at all at the time. And anyway, we made it to Mississippi. Mike Turner felt at home in Mississippi because he was from Mississippi. And uh, that was the only time that I had a, a, a real, real bad experience other than the daily humiliations of being segregated 24 hours, 7, 24-7. <clears throat> and, and so... But, but but anyway, that was the only really encounter that I had with a violent like reaction. Just for presence. trying to go to the bathroom, unbelievable. And it was a, it was a gas station. And there were no signs, so I mean that. No. No. <clears throat> so <clears throat> with Ike, I mean, you were basically playing a lot of vamps. I mean, there wasn't a lot of. I mean, were you leaving the head of the tune and stretching out? Did you have sections where you would no. improvise? No, it was pretty. St- yeah. No, no, they were they were uh, wrote. Yes, I, wrote. I, 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 I would sit down with his guitar and dictate our parts to us, and we memorized the parts when he dictated them to us, and then we tried them on the gig. And uh, that was certainly not easy because by the time the night came around, you had to remember your part and, and remember these tunes and um, some of them were backing Tina and uh, Ike and some were just backing Ike wow. and then some were just band tunes that before Ike would come on and uh, it was a good experience because I'd never, I'd never had a gig like that before uh, no written music. And um, I stayed with that band about, uh, I guess, about six months. 
Uh, yeah, no, I'm cur- I really am curious about how you wound up. I mean, you were, I mean, you were, you were in Motown. I'm trying to figure out how you got in there. Well, uh, okay. Uh, after, uh, that was 1966, 1967. I, uh, got a recording job. Uh, by the way, uh, I, in, in the army, I had become a baritone player. Right. I played alto and clarinet, and uh, so uh, the job at, at Motown was with a young writer. I think his name was Jerry Long. I'm not sure about that. And anyway, that was my first gig with Motown. And they were happy with the fact that I had a low A on the baritone. At that time, the low A was relatively new. Hmm. And uh, that was, I remember, the first Motown gig. And then I started getting gigs with uh, 10 days at a time with like Stevie. It was Stevie one day, he was caught at the time. Well, how did you, I mean, I'm just curious about, like, when you left Ike, did you go? How did you wind up in Detroit? I didn't wind up in Detroit. I was picked up uh, gig by gig uh, by a contractor in Los Angeles. You got to you got to break this down. So you were playing when the bands would come in. You'd play with them live, but did you play with them live? But I didn't record with them. You didn't record with them. Did not, no. Did not. Okay, I got it. So you would, like, when they were on tour and they needed you, they would bring a horn section in? No. When, when, when they were on tour, they'd come and they'd come through California, uh, say, like, the Temptations or Tops or, or any, any of them. Everybody but Diana Ross I played with. But they would bring their rhythm sections, but... Hired the horns in Los Angeles. Absolutely. So you're t- are you you played with uh, <clears throat> Pistol Allen and James Jamerson? Uh, Jamerson, I believe so. I'm not sure because I wasn't paying much attention. To, <laughs> to, you know, I dig. <clears throat> I was trying to do the gig and uh, yeah, you were just trying to sing for your supper. You know, at the time it was just. I'm just wondering because they brought that rhythm section with them, and that probably was the it definitely was the original Funk Brothers, you know, with uh, Earl Van Dyke and Pistol Allen and and Jamerson, most likely, you know. Um, not too sure about the names of, of those guys. This is as at best I can tell you it was 1967. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, so like the, the, the singers would bring Maurice King with them. He was the music director, and he would rehearse us over the music, and uh, we'd do the gig. Sometimes the gig would last ten days, sometimes two weeks, sometimes one night, and uh, so I got a chance to play with most, most, most of the Motown people. When you would they same venue for ten days in a row? Would you go through the state of California? 
no, it was like the whiskey a go go for like ten days. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. And then go down to San Diego and play one night. The one night I played with uh, Smokey Robinson, a riot started and they started fighting, and so the gig was called off. <laughs> so my God, uh, there was a riot. Well, I don't, let's not call it a riot. No, I get what you're saying. It was a disturbance, and they had to shut the whole thing down. Yeah, they had to shut the entire uh, auditorium down. And uh, but the rest of them we played, you know, like, uh, I remembered Stevie uh, so well because I, I used to like to talk with him. Hmm. And he was so young, he was still a teenager. And he sat down and played this organ in the, in the nightclub that was sitting around the nightclub. And I said, hey, you play organ? He said, yeah, I play piano too. Because <laughs> at the time he was playing harmonica. Holy cow. You know, and he said, I'm going to go to college too. <laughs> so was he, he was playing harmonica and singing or just playing harp? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is so... Legend. So you, I know Johnny Williams though. Like, were you, were you going to the, on the nights that you weren't working? Did you, would you go down to <clears throat> Memory Lane or the It Club? Were you playing with jazzers? Would I mean? Because I mean, you could, yeah, yeah. I lived, I lived in Los Angeles. So, so like, what kind of, what kind of small ensembles? Were, who were you gigging with at that time, like when you weren't getting contracted to play with the Motown Cats? Oh, yeah, but it wasn't... Uh, it was just a, a fight for survival, you know? Like, uh, I, I got a chance to play with a lot of people around town, but sometimes it would be feast, a feast and famine existence, you know? Who like which which when things were going when you were feasting who who would you gig with? Oh gosh, you know, uh, I worked with Gerald Wilson. Sure. Um, what about like Chico Hamilton or Charles Lloyd or any of those cats? No, 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 no. None of the, none of the small groups. I I was primarily a big. Band. You were primarily big. I dig, man. I dig it. So Wilson. I wonder, I'm trying to think about the other big band guys that were, I mean, Gerald was way ahead of his time out there. Um, Trying to think about the other big bands that were sort of... I was the initial baritone player of the Juggernaut. Right. Uh, That's Frank. Frank Cap. Frank Cap and Nat Pierce. Wow. Uh, actually, uh, the first, on the first night, I didn't play with him, and I ran into Nat Pierce in a coffee shop, and he said, I, I didn't know that you were Duff Basie, and I said, yes, and he, he said, well, uh, you can play with us, we, we need all of the Basie guys in the band. So, but anyway, I mean, just a lot of people, man, how do I, how do I sum it up, and, uh, you know, you no, you, you you summed it up because you know what, like, uh, because the truth is, <laughs> um, because the truth is that there was a real, I mean, Harold, when I interviewed Harold for the third time the other day, he said, you know, 
he was just a big band guy through and through. You know, it was always, you know, it was always that <clears throat> that way. He wasn't the small ensemble stuff, the the modal jazz, the fusion. That that was a whole different game. He never went there. That's right. That's right. I went there and do jam sessions at people's homes and and uh, garages and you know, etc. But I mean. Uh, most of, most of my living came from being an accompanist. Uh, a baritone saxophone player and a big band uh, backing a, a singer. And I mean, just loads and loads through the years of singers. And, uh, you know. Yeah, those were good gigs. I mean, they pay... Uh, Yes and no. Right. I mean, sometimes it's so fast. It happens so fast. And uh, individual cash gigs. We didn't make a lot of money. And uh, did you ever uh, did you ever um, cross paths with John Coltrane? Look, I went to hear him play twice. Once in Los Angeles and once in New York. The night I got out of the army, I became, uh, got off the ship. I, I listened to him all night, just uh, completely thrilled. I'm just, boy. Hmm. But uh, anyway, never met him. I always wished that I had met him. So, Johnny, uh, I'm about to <laughs> run out of uh, room on my right. re- recorder. Um would you like a copy of, of this interview? No, not especially. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say, man, um, like, it is such a high honor to be able to, you know, I interviewed Senator Eugene Wright and all these other cats, but, I mean... Yeah, Eugene Wright. You know, like, I, you know, to be able to talk to somebody who has literally been... a just in our social milieu playing this great American music for so many years, man, it, I'm very humbled, uh, to have connected with you, man. So, um, well, I just wanted to say that, uh, uh, nothing topped having been with the PC band for 38 years. Um, you know, I just wanted to mention the fact that, uh, I met him when I was 14 and I never, Remember to tell him that I'd met him and talked with him. So uh, during the during the Lionel Hampton times, you met Basie too. I met Basie uh, in 1951 uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, and he was sitting listening to Marshall Royal uh, rehearse the band. And I said, "Are you Count Basie?" And he said, "Yes." I said, may I sit with you? And he said, he said that's great. You have a seat. <laughs> and uh, I said, how do you like Lester Young? <laughs> and he said, he said, well, that's my man. And I, said, well, I said, what about Stan Getz? And he said, well, I wish I could get him in my band. Yeah. You know, and then, but years later when I joined the band in 1970, I had no idea that I would forget 
tell him about that initial meeting when I was 14 years old. Well, you just sent it out into the ethos now. You must have played with my dear, late, great, another guy that I feel so happy that I interviewed was Cleveland Eaton. Oh, but we were dear friends, you know. I mean, it's so beautiful because his spirit is still with me, man. He, me too, me too. You know, man, like I, that's so beautiful, man. Like that to me, Count Basie, Cleveland Eaton, Johnny Williams, Harold Jones. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, man. That to yes, me. it does. It does. Uh, and, uh, but just thank you very much for calling. I haven't been uh, having conversations much. I've been a little bit under the weather, so you kind of revived me. Oh, man. Uh, you know, we just went for 70 minutes, man. So if you ever want or your family wants to get a copy of this, that's going to be up online. And uh, let's just stay in touch, man. Much love to you. And, uh, and, 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 and your, your name? My name is Jake Feinberg. And I got Feinberg. you. Yeah, Feinberg. And, I, uh, and uh, when I talk to Harold Jones, he's like, the only cat that's still with us from the Basie band is Johnny Williams. Yeah, well, anyway, I, I wish all of you... All of God's blessings for you, man. Uh, oh, man, dude. Thank you so much, Johnny. I love you, man. Bless you, too, man. I love you. You know, keep your hand in the big hand, brother. Oh, man. Much love. Keep swinging, Johnny. Love you, man. Thank you. Same to uh, you, man. Peace. Bye. Bye-bye. Peace. Bye.